The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. I, I thought it would be good, I know many of you are familiar with it, but I'm going to do this very, very quickly to explain what we mean by replacement theology. It is, in my humble estimation, though I confess and insist that many, not all, but many who have embraced this theology and do today are Christian brothers. This is, in some ways, an intramural debate, but I will nonetheless, uh, I don't want to be uh, mean-spirited or or overly censorious, but I don't know that there has ever been a more corrupting set of ideas that have invaded Christianity than replacement theology. Let me explain what it is real quickly. Uh, The the more formal uh, term, as many of you know, is supersessionism. You should know that, actually. It comes from the the, the, the English word to supersede, and, and it actually means to take the seat of another, to take the place, to displace. That's exactly what supersessionism uh, means. And uh, just by way of illustration, it's interesting that all across the uh, Europe, the cathedrals, many of the cathedrals, this, this particular one is taken from the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, there is this twin set of statues, and it's called Ecclesia et Synagogue. And you use the church and the synagogue. And notice, if you will, and these will be, again, a a statuary uh, uh, over the door of many, many uh, churches. And you'll notice that uh, here is is, uh, Israel, this representation of Israel on the right. And her head is bowed. She's blinded. You'll see in her left hand, well, you won't quite see it from where you are, but that's actually the tablets of the law, and they're hanging loose and uh, her crown is at her feet, and so on. Her staff is broken. So that's the synagogue. And here, of course, is the reigning triumphant church uh, with, her, with her look of uh, victory and so on, and her strong uh, scepter of power and the chalice and so on. That, that, that message right there. Now, sometimes it's even a little more uh, explicit, as in this wood carving from uh, a 15th century wood carving from a cathedral in Germany. And here, can you see it from where you're at? There is, uh, here is the church, and she is uh, vanquishing uh, Judaism, the synagogue. And uh, the church, by the way, is on St. George's horse, which was a medieval uh, uh, standard symbol. And, of course, what was St. George usually doing on his horse? Yeah, he was slaying monsters and dragons and so on. Uh, but but uh, it's interesting that uh, the Israel here has this grimace of pain and so on, but he also she has on a strange helmet, which uh, was the helmet which a uh, helmet of shame that the Jews were required to to wear in Germany in that day. And notice what she's writing. Can you see it from there at all? It's a sow. It's called the Juden sow, and uh, it, it's it's a pig, and it was a standard way of representing Israel in the Middle Ages. So. That is part of the way she was represented. So, so the point is, that's supersessionism. Now, let me give you just my easy, simple definition. I think it's twofold. Number one, I'm going to read to you. Uh, the people nation. Now, remember that that people... I don't want to get off on this. I keep telling myself, keep going. But remember that in the Old Testament, you had a lot of history, Genesis 1 to 11, that went by before Abraham was chosen. 
But over halfway into Old Testament history, remember there's more human history in Genesis 1 to 11 than there is in the rest of the Old Testament in terms of years. And so, and so you've got a lot of human history, but in the course of time, God raises up and makes covenant with this man who will become a family, which will become a clan, which will become a race, an, I'm sorry, a nation, and he makes covenant with that people. But the point is, uh, replacement theology simply it says that the people nation Israel, by reason of their rebellion, have been judicially and eternally rejected and set aside in the salvific purposes of God. So God is done with Israel. And then positively, the other side of that, of course, is that the church universal, that's another subject for another day, but the church universal has been chosen by God to replace or supersede the Jewish people and the purpose of God and thus have become the inheritors of all the blessed promises originally given specifically and explicitly to Israel, right? Is that, I think that's a fair... Now, let me just say that most of those who embrace replacement theology today uh, eschew the term. They don't want... Matter of fact, they'll insist they're not. They'll find some fine point that they reject. Say, well, I'm not really a replacement theology theologian. Just ask this one question. To me, there's a litmus test. And that is, you want to know if you're a replacement theology, ask yourself, does God, by your, right, by your light, still have a purpose for Israel as a people nation? This is what, a lot of, what you'll hear today is, well, I'm not a replacement theologian because I believe near the second coming there will be a great wave of revival among the Jews and many Jews will come to Christ and what? Come into the church. So, 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 but, 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 so there, there's no distinct purpose that God has for Israel as a people nation. That's replacement theology. So I say, does God still have, this is the kind of question you've got to ask yourself. Does God still have a plan for Israel, which includes their exaltation to a place of honor among the nations as eternally, in, not because of some goodness on the part of Israel, for heaven's sakes. That, that, that's not the issue. In fact, it is very much the issue, but the fact is that they have proven that they do. There's nothing deserving about it, but as an internally enduring testimony, the covenant faithfulness and bottomless grace of Yahweh. All right, now that, that's just sort of a short course on, and I, I, I'll give you some quotes. Now I'm going to read to you, I'm insulting you, but not all of you can see it, so that's why I'm doing it. So there. But uh, this is origin. This is early. This is third century. He's one of the very, very important. Uh, theologians and thinkers of the very early church. Oh, don't get me started, but he was horribly corrupted. He bought into Greco-Roman Platonic thinking. He introduced uh, allegorizing interpretation. Matter of fact, he codified it in the church. And he laid the groundwork for uh, the next century when Augustine came along and, and pretty much canonized or, or codified uh, uh, replacement theology as a part of Roman Catholic doctrine. But he says... Uh, and here you hear this, this replacement theme. We say with confidence they'll ne- that they, Israel, will never be restored to their former condition, never be restored. Time out, time out. You read William E. Blackstone, and you say to yourself, wait a minute, this guy is writing when there is no human possibility of Israel being restored. I read these guys who, who were writing, and just because the Bible taught it, they believe it, I always think, wow, from our perspective... It's a little easier because Israel's sitting there, but it's amazing. But here's Origen in the 3rd century saying, 
They'll never be restored. Now, they have not been restored yet to their former condition. That's going to come yet, but God has certainly brought them back. For they committed a crime of the most unhallowed kind and conspired against the Savior of the human race in that city where they offered up to God, this is Jerusalem, a worship containing the symbols of mighty mysteries. Those, those were only mysteries, and they missed the, the fulfillment of the mystery. It accordingly behooved, it was appropriate, that city where Jesus underwent these sufferings to perish utterly and the Jewish nation to be overthrown and the invitation to happiness offered them by God to pass to others, the Christians. So there you go, pass to us. Got that? Now here's some more, and it gets kind of ugly sometimes. I know you're familiar with this, but uh, Michael Vlock. And by the way, are you familiar with Michael Vlock? Uh, write that name down. Do a little Google. Find him. Anything you want to know about. So he teaches at Master's Seminary in California, and he just stays so carefully abreast. Tremendous scholar and really understands. Did his doctoral dissertation on the Urim and Thummim. No, not him. But did it on, did it on uh, supersessionism at uh, Southeastern. But at any rate, he says this. He's quoting a, a, a Dutch theologian, and he says, uh, according to this man, the New Testament affirms that Israel would no longer be... The New Testament affirms, watch that, that Israel would no longer be... Uh, the, the people of God would be replaced by a people that would accept the Messiah and his message of the kingdom of God. And so Rendell believes that his people is the church who uh, replaced the Christ-rejecting nation. you hear it? Uh, here's Albertus Peters. Uh, gets a little, a little more mean-spirited. Uh, he was a huge, hugely important Lutheran theologian. Oh, I'm sorry, Reformed theologian. But he says, God willed that after the institution of the New Covenant, that is, after Pentecost, if you don't mind, there should no longer be any Jewish people in the world. Yet here they are. So he takes it another step. He says that's a fact, a very sad fact, brought about by their wicked rebellion against God. In what way, according to this, did the Jews rebel against God? By surviving. <laughs> so, that's what he's saying, isn't it? Well, here. Here's, I, I'm not kidding. What he's saying is that, listen, this is uh, uh, Lorraine, excuse me, Lorraine Beckner, who is a just very, very important uh, Reformed theologian. I mean, Presbyterian. And again, I'll tell you something. And at this point, you and I, many of us, have to sit down and have a talk about this. I realize this. But I've learned from Lorraine Bettner. There are things that I've profited from and, uh, uh, in, 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 in his books and so on. But at this point, his theology is, in my mind, awful. But he says this. He says it specifically. You want, you want replacement theology. With the establishment of the Christian church, Judaism should have made a smooth and willing transition into Christianity should thereby have disappeared as the flower falls away from the developing fruit. Uh, so, so by the way, by the way, the fruit, what we're really after, do you plant a fruit tree for the blossom or for the fruit? So where's this whole thing headed? See? It's headed for the fruit, and the blossom is only part of the process to get there. That's replacement theology, see? So they should have just passed away, uh, and he says it's Israel's continuation after the time of Christ, and particularly its revival after the judgment of God had fallen on so severely in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, was sinful. The continuation of this bitterly anti-Christian racial group has brought no good to themselves, and there has been strife and antagonism in practically every nation where they've gone. So not only was it wicked for Israel as a people to survive, but they've been the scourge of human history. Now that, now, now, now let me just say, Please understand me, folks, that most replacement theologies don't, theologians do not feel. And, that, and that's, this is the reason, by the way, why so many 
who really embrace a theology which says that God is done with Israel and the churches don't want to be identified with this. And, and you know well, and Friends of Israel has been so active in this, and I think nobly and wisely so, that, that there has been a realization in the Jewish world, the unbelieving Jewish world, that there is a brand of Christian theology which, which, which is horrified by this. Dispensational, premillennial theology. It's been a major discovery on the part of the Jewish community in the last 20 years. It's, it's had some remarkable ramifications. But, you know, from, from the time... Uh, from as long as I can remember, and as long as most of you can remember, I think, it has been standard among the Jews that their greatest enemies on the earth were Christians, right? Well, makes sense, doesn't it? All right, now that's not what I want to talk about, though. So so that's pretty, that's, sometimes in in, in its uglier and more offensive expressions, to be sure, but replacement theology which dominates the thinking, believing Christian world today is basically this idea that Israel has been superseded, has been displaced by reason of her rebellion by the church, and now God has no future for Israel, whatever. Okay, that's, that's now I'm just going to leave it at that, all right? Now, how do they defend it? Well, there's a lot we could say here. But I think it's important to say, and I, I don't want to get off on this. I told myself, should I put this? But historically, it's just been the dogma of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church more or less invented and canonized, codified uh, replacement theology. In other words, the church replaced Israel. What church? The Roman church. What? Now, the Roman church was not in the 4th century and in the Middle Ages and so on, exactly what it is today. But the official Roman church uh, insisted that they were New Testament Israel. Now, time out real quickly. But do you see how important that is to what they are trying to frame? In other words, in the Old Testament, was it not true? That there was no access to God? We're going to talk about this in just a minute. Save through Israel? Well, see the point? If Rome is the New Testament Israel, see the point? There's no access to God, no salvation except in Rome. I always say, where do you go in the New Testament to get the idea that the church should have a priest? Not only is it not affirmed in the New Testament, it is explicitly denied. There is one argument for the idea of a New Testament priesthood, and that is replacement theology. Israel had priests in the Old Testament. We're New Testament Israel. Israel had an altar. Why in so many churches today, though it's not in the New Testament, do you have an altar? It's replacement theology. I'm telling you, a a sacrifice. Where do you get the idea that there ought to be an ongoing sacrifice? You won't get it out of the Old Testament. There's one place, and that is you begin by saying Israel had sacrificial systems in the Old Testament. We are New Testament Israel. We need a sacrifice, and thus the Mass. So I'm just saying to you that it's at that point that I say, I don't know a more, it is a cornucopia of theological aberrations, this, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, set of ideas called replacement theology. All right, now. But that, historically, it's, it's just been the dogma of the church. But 
here's what happened, quite frankly, and this is my reading of the Reformation, and I count myself in many ways a, 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 certainly a beneficiary of the Reformation. I'm standing on, on reformers' shoulders. I'll acknowledge that, though I don't trace myself directly to them. I will say that as well, but, I mean, ideologically. But, but having said that, uh, what the reformers did, basically, was reject the idea that the Roman Catholic Church was New Testament Israel and replace it with the notion that the universal church is New Testament Israel. Does that make sense to you? And so once again, I think it's an improvement in theology, but there is still tremendous error in it. And, and so, uh, uh, but, so, so but, but here's where I want to take you. Today, and over the last 30 years perhaps, and I, I shouldn't get into this, but there was sort of a hermeneutical rationale that was employed by those who, who held to this, and it had no integrity, it had no merit, whatever. And, and, and so in the last 25, 30 years or so, the rationale has shifted, and today it is simply this. Now, I've lost you all together with, with all the historical talk. My point is simply this. How do you defend replacement theology? If you really believe this, what, what device, what strategy do you have to try and defend it? And basically, today, there is, it is a hermeneutical argument, and it's twofold with regard to replacement theology. Are you with me? If I believe the Bible, and the people who embrace this, not all of them, in many cases, they really are believers. We learn from them. Not, not in this area, I trust, but you know there are areas where they can help us. But if, 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 you, if you believe this, how in the world do you get there? Well, you start out by saying, I believe that the New Testament interprets the old. And there's a high-sounding quality to that. Isn't Jesus the final word of Revelation? Isn't the New Testament the final word? Isn't this, shouldn't this correct what came before? Absolutely not. As high-sounding as it might be, and I was going to put some quotes in, I've got to, got to get past it, but this notion that the New t- Look, folks, <laughs> we believe, do we not, in the progress of Revelation? simply means God didn't dump all of the revelation at once. He has, he has given revelation in stages. I like to think of it as stair steps. But the progress is always from truth to greater truth. It's never from error to truth. God never says A and then comes along later and says, just kidding, not A. He doesn't say that. Can we agree on that? Honest to goodness, I know I'm preaching the choir here, but this is, this is a hideous idea. This idea that the New Testament is so high-sounding. You know what, by the way? Think about this real quickly. If you embrace this, how came we to be Trinitarian? Why do we believe that there is one God who exists in three persons, even though we can't explain it? How do we get there? I'll tell you how we got there. The Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, there is one, God keeps saying again and again, the most central message concerning himself is the, the, the Lord your God is one God. There's one God. Now, I always think, how would you like to have been the prophet who was chosen to introduce the idea of triunity? You know, how would you like to have come and said, by the way, there are three up there, you know, and you're about to say, but it's only one person, and you're looking up at a pile of stones, you know what I'm saying? So, so but, but I'll tell you, here's the interesting thing. God didn't send a prophet. You know what he did? 
He sent his son. And his son made these two remarkable claims. Number one, he claimed to be God. And number two, he claimed to be distinct from the Father. Now, the whole early Christian community wrestled with that. It took them about 200 years to come up with a set of terms, a glossary to give kind of expression to it. But as they wrestled, they said this. Now watch this. They said, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as one God. We have to bring that with us. As we struggle with what we're looking at here, with what Jesus is saying, we have to bring with us what the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, when it comes to Trinitarian theology, the Old Testament is interpreting the new, right? By this hermeneutic, what? If by this the, the hermeneutic, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself. Look, in the Old Testament, God made promises to Israel. But it was only because of immaturity we thought it was Israel. In the New Testament, he makes it clear it's the church. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself as one God. But it was only by reason of our immaturity that we accepted it as one God because in the New Testament, you find out there are three. Right? By this theology, we're tritheists. That's wicked. That's heresy. And the whole community which embraces this also affirms Trinitarianism. And Trinitarianism is a function of progressive revelation honoring the fact that God never, ever unsays what he has said in the past. Amen? All right. Now I'm not going to get done, am I? The second one. So there are two steps to this. Number one is the New Testament interprets the Old, and then here's the big one. There are places in the New Testament, they're not, they're not, there's not a plethora of these, there's not a great number, but there are, where the New Testament uses of the church language and figures which in the Old Testament are applied to Israel. So this, folks, this is it. There's nothing else out there. This is the construct. This is the strategy. Why would we think that God has replaced Israel with the church? Well, number one, you have to begin here, and that's why all of the discussion that goes on today about the way um, Matthew cites Hosea and all this sort of thing, because we have to validate this notion that the New Testament can somehow unsay what the Old Testament said, can redefine the Old Testament. And once that is accomplished as a working principle, then the next argument is, aha, and I think there's a, the wish is the father of the thought here, by the way. Then the next argument is, aha, in the New Testament, there are places where language is used of the church, which is explicitly used. So, if in the Old Testament, well, let me take you the next step, because, oh, <laughs> can you see that from where you are? I always think this argument puts me in mind of this. This argument that the New Testament uses the Old Testament, look at that for a minute. Can you, what, can you see what's going on there? Yeah, it is. It's, it's that, uh, who's building on whom here is the point. You know, if you, I don't know if you can see it there, but... But, you know, you got this New Testament interprets the old, and so God gives truth and lays a foundation, then later on he comes along and twists it all out of shape, and it means something it didn't mean to them, and so on. Forgive me, that may be no help. But here's the point. <laughs> uh, the passage, and take your Bible and go to 1 Peter 2, and verses 9 and 10. And I think maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just... Uh, deal with part of, uh, of this, and then, and then we'll finish it tomorrow because I'd really like to, I'd love to entertain questions about it. So that's what we're going to do in the morning, right? We'll have just a briefer session uh, of 
the actual uh, teaching, and then, and then we'll throw it open for questions. So if, if, yeah, I'd love to take your questions tomorrow. But 1 Peter chapter 2 is, there are, there are others, to be sure. Uh, you know, there are many. I, I think, by the way, it's fair to reduce the question of premillennialism versus ah uh, or postmillennialism, if you can deal with those terms. I think most of you can. To this question, did Jesus come to offer the kingdom to Israel? Or did he come to redefine the kingdom for Israel? And many will go to the Matthew 13 parables and I think do them some hermeneutical violence and come away insisting that Jesus is redefining the kingdom. It's some brand new, spiritualized, non-literal. They'll go to uh, John 18, of course. Don't get me started. You know, the king, my kingdom is not of this world. But uh, the passage, which, and as a matter of fact, is First Peter 2, and Peter, writing rather late, writing somewhere around uh, 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 64 B.C., probably after the eruption of the Neronian persecution, so a little ways in, Peter having ministered for a lot of years up there in the uh, area of northern Galatia, according to 1 Peter 1 here, that's where he addresses the book. But in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, uh, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation his own special people. Now watch this. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had, obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now that verse, above all others, and I'm going to give you some quotes here. Uh, here is Robert Sosi from Talbot, actually a dispensationalist, a progressive, but it, I, I include this quote because it's so fascinating to me that he, he, he gives away the, 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 the farm here. I mean, he thinks he's being very, very um, careful, and I think he is in his own mind. But so he, he's not a supersessionist. He's a premillennialist. He believes that there is a, but, but he believes that there is some very important and unanticipated form of the kingdom today. And so he would embrace a sort of a limited replacement theology. Well, that's, all right, I better not get any further. But he says this application, he's talking specifically. All right, now I haven't told you this yet. And it's, it's, it comes in a minute. But do you know the passage from which Peter is citing there, which he's citing, the Old Testament passage? No, he's talking here. There, there are several places where it shows up. That's good, Hosea with the people and so on. Specifically, it's Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Maybe I ought to look at that. Because uh, I'm not going to make my point very well if I don't. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. So go back there and let me set this scene. This is, this is hugely important. This is uh, definitional of God's purposes for Israel in the Old Testament. Again, my revered theo- the- uh, theology uh, professor, uh, uh, Rollo McCune, Detroit Seminary, uh, always used to tell us this is the golden text of the Old Testament. There's as much uh, theology as far as God's purpose with Israel and so on wrapped up in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 and any other passage in the Old Testament. Where And this is at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have left Egypt. They have made their way through the wilderness. They have got to Mount Sinai. And now the uh, nation is camped at the foot of the mount and the, and the mountain, I'm sorry, the glory cloud, the president, the Theophany, which, which represented the covenant presence of Yahweh, is hovering in the clo- on, the, on the mountain, and the God begins to speak. And in Exodus 19.5, he says, maybe I ought to go there my own self, but he says, if you will keep this covenant, which he is offering, and of course it is the old or 
Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant, which is at stake here. But he says, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasure, a special treasure to me above all people. Notice what he says, for all the earth is mine. And then he says this, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, if you've kept your finger in 1 Peter 2 there, you may remember he says, you shall be a royal priesthood. And royal is the word basilus, and it means... It's, it's, it's clearly citing this. You shall be a kingdom uh, of priests. And then he says in verse uh, five, uh, 6 of Exodus 19, and a holy nation. Again, you go back to First Peter, and he says, a holy nation in my new King James. And then he says, uh, he goes on to say, um, these are the words, well, you shall, th- those two thoughts. He had also said, in a former verse, that he would be a special people. And you have that same phrase there in 1 Peter 2. So quite clearly, now get this, folks, and this is, what, this is why this passage is so pivotal. Uh, in point of fact, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, as I say, are as definitional as any passage in the Old Testament as to God's purposes with Israel. And what he is saying is, I am going, this is Exodus 19, uh, uh, 1446 B.C. at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, what he is saying is, God is saying, if you'll accept this covenant, I will make this people. Remember, Israel counts Abraham, their father, as a people. They count Moses, their father, as a nation. It's here at Mount Sinai that the people of Israel become the nation of Israel. And God says, if you will accept this covenant, I will make you into my very special nation. All the earth is mine. But I am going to make a relationship with you I've never made, never will make with any other people. And you will be to me a kingdom with a priestly function. I'll minister the truth of myself, God says, to the world through you, and the world will approach me through you. That's what a priest does. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. And in order to do that, I'll make you a holy nation. I will set you aside. Now, we're going to talk about that tomorrow morning, exactly what's involved there. But suffice it to say here that you have that remarkable terminology, that very special, deliberate, definitional terminology in Exodus 19. And now Peter comes along and writing to Christians says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. God has, in order that you might put on display the glory of the one who has called you out of darkness. And you were once not a people, but now you are a people. Now you say this to believers. That makes sense to you? This is the, this is the big one. And that's why, uh, again, going back to it, I guess, uh, when, when Sosi says this application of Israel's terminology, right out of Exodus 19, to the church means that the New Testament writers uh, were identifying the church as the new Israel. I don't believe it means that at all. Let me just say it. I don't believe that's what it means at all. I don't think. But, uh, and, and hence, redefining the concept of Israel. So he's, he's given way too much away here. But here is it more explicit. This is Wayne Grudem. Uh, many of you are familiar with it. He's a Baptist. He's uh, you know, very, very important and helpful uh, expositor and, and theologian. But he's wrong here. And he says on the basis, it's in a commentary on 1 Peter, and he says God's chosen people are no longer said to be those physically descended from Abraham, for Christians are now the true chosen race. And he's, he's getting that out of 1 Peter 2.9. 
And what more could be needed, he says, what more could be needed in order to say with assurance that the church has now become the, now this always drives me nuts, the true Israel. That's a code word. Because when they, they'll always talk about the true Israel. And the idea is that Israel thought she was Israel, and God treated her as Israel. I think I've told you before, I had a bit of a debate one time, and the guy I was, I was sparring with said to me, well, the only reason that in the Old Testament, when God made promises, people thought that he was, doing it to, he was making those promises to physical Israel was because of immaturity. And it takes the maturity of the New Testament to read those to understand that he didn't really mean Israel. And my response, quite frankly, was, no, the only reason that people in the Old Testament thought he meant Israel is because he said Israel again and again and again. And it would have been high-handed rebellion to hear him saying anything other than Israel. But you see, the suggestion here is that, okay, it was Israel, but they weren't the true Israel. And the true Israel, what God really meant was the church. But I, 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 I lose my way. The point is, this is, this, this is uh, uh, again, here's I. Howard Marshall, one of the most important New Testament commentators, Brit. He says, it is impossible, and again, he's writing on 1 Peter 2. He's very adamant here. It's impossible to avoid the impression that Peter deliberately says that the contemporary people of Israel are no longer God's people, standing in communion with the people of the Old Testament times, but rather that the church, here it comes again, is the true heir of Israel. So God has replaced Israel with the church. That's the idea. Now, uh, I need to be done. I'm going to leave it here and walk you through a quick critique. Let me, let me just tell you something. And maybe I could stir up your pure minds here by way of anticipation, turning Peter on his head, uh, who spoke of stirring up your pure minds by way of remembrance. But by way of anticipation... Uh, there, First Peter 2, is, is 9 and 10, is staring us in the face. And there is a profoundly important reality embedded in that, in that passage. And I tried to summarize it under the heading, replacement no, but reinforcement yes. And I do believe, I'll just tell you right now, I do believe that in a profound sense, Israel having been set aside temporarily, having been set aside judicially and temporarily, that in this day, Jesus promised that he would raise up a remarkable organism. And today, that organism, the church, does fulfill the role temporarily that Israel once fulfilled. So, and not because God didn't see it coming, not because somehow it took it by surprise, Remember, folks, all of human history is about God demonstrating his glory. And the way he demonstrates his glory is to put on display his grace against the backdrop of the hardness and the stubbornness of those people who have been promised that grace. And so now we have this season where Israel... Blindness has come upon Israel in part, and she has been set aside. The natural branch has been broken off for a season, and the unnatural branch has been grafted in 
as much as anything else, by the way, to excite jealousy in the natural branch so that the day will come when that nation will indeed bow the knee to the one whom once she cursed, uh, who once she slew, and that nation, by reason of her redemption, will throughout eternity be the most powerful testimony to the bottomless grace and the covenant-keeping nature of God. Does that make sense to you? So, is it true that today, in a profound sense, now I'm preaching my sermon for tomorrow, so I'm going to say all this tomorrow, but I, I just want you to tie it together. Uh, uh, what is done with 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10 is, in my mind, insidious and, and, and again, a font of all sorts of horribly unfortunate aberrations. On the other hand, we have to deal with what it says, and that is that you and I have a stewardship. We have a profoundly important stewardship because in this day, we are the ones who have been chosen to put God on display. We believers, I believe in local churches, are the ones who have, not because we have permanently replaced Israel, not because Israel has been judicially and eternally set aside, but because in God's perfect and, and all-wise purposes, there is this season of high-handed rebellion when the natural branch is temporarily broken off, and in that season, you and I are the royal priesthood, the chosen people who are given this stewardship of putting God on display. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, thank you again for your word and the clarity of it, and we want to be... Father, we want to confess that we are fallen, we are finite, we have every capacity to misunderstand, but by the same token, we have your spirit, and he is our teacher, and we are called to be absolutely careful students and stewards of your word. That's all we want to do, and I pray that even as we handle some of these uh, controversial issues, it'll be with that spirit. But Father, uh, thank you so much for the wisdom that you have demonstrated and even laid out for us. Have you have, have, have described your perfect plan in the pages of Scripture. And we honor you now and we anticipate with joy the opportunity to honor you throughout eternity as we, as we understand more and more with each passing eternal day uh, what a good and gracious and faithful God you are. We worship you in the name of your Son. Amen.